We're all gathered here today to listen to a dwarf cast by Ganymede and Titan. Start the tape, please, Holly. Awoga, this is a dwarf cast. This is Radio 4. Sorry. Written by Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. Starring Christopher Barry, Nick Maloney, Nick Wilton. Music by Pete Bruce. On Tuesday the 23rd of August 1983, a little piece of comedy history was made. In the 6.30pm slot on Radio 4. A brand new sketch show. Written by two Mancunians who were quickly making a name for themselves within the industry and with a cast that included one of the people who would go on to star in their biggest success, which, in itself, would be an adaptation of one of its regular sketches. Forty years later, we celebrate Son of Cliché by bringing you a selection of its greatest moments, while analysing the themes that would develop into Grant Naylor's inimitable voice, and in some cases the scenes that would be transplanted directly into their later work. Before Red Dwarf, there was Son of Cliché, but our story doesn't quite start there because before Son of Cliché, there was, of course... Cliché! Welcome to Cliché, starring Carol Heyman, Nick Maloney, Simon Malloy and Brian Southwood. In many ways, the grandfather of Dwarf the original cliché ran for six episodes in March and April 1981. Five of the six episodes exist in the BBC archive, and have been repeated on Radio 4 Extra a couple of times in recent years. The missing episode five thankfully exists as an off-air recording. Written by Robin Doug, the show had a fresh contemporary style, which nowadays very much screams early 80s, as you could probably tell from the theme tune. In all honesty, it's a little bit hit and miss, but there are some very good sketches and some early signs of that quintessential Grant Naylor magic. Simon, with a vocabulary of only seven words, surely you must have tremendous difficulty in communicating with people. No way, actually. Absolutely no way. Nonsense. <laughs> oh, those are, those are four of your words. Right, right. Right. And that's the fifth. Working in the music business, where communication is essential, what do your colleagues think of your vocabulary? Excellent. Absolutely excellent, actually. Huh. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So uh, now we have the seven words. Um, absolutely, amazing, actually, excellent, right, no way, and nonsense. Right, right? actually. That's incredible. Absolutely amazing, right? <laughs> Great. Excellent. For Simon, it's a constant problem. Thousands are like him, yet they go undiagnosed. Amazing, actually. Yeah. Oh, no way. Absolutely not. Many students, Absolutely. rock music critics, Absolutely. local radio disc jockeys, Absolutely. and many social workers yeah. all number among the Excellent. afflicted. Right. The excellent yeah. nonsense syndrome can That's happen to right. any one of us. Amazingly enough, Absolutely even right. to me, actually. Absolutely, Absolutely amazing, right? Absolutely. At any time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no way. Absolutely. It's really... Abs abs 
It also saw some great social commentary from the writers who would go on to mastermind Spitting Image, including this sketch that was very much ahead of its time. Look, for heaven's sake, I've just been assaulted by an eight-foot gorilla. Sorry, sir, these are routine questions I have to know. Did you struggle? Did I struggle? He's an eight-foot gorilla! Did you encourage him in any way? Of course I didn't encourage him. Did you hit him? Did you scream? He's an eight-foot gorilla! Was he armed? No. He just had hands you could park a car on. He was bigger and stronger than me. What was I supposed to do? Would you describe yourself as a promiscuous sort of person, sir? No. What's that got to do with it for crying out loud? He's waiting. He's watching. He's coming after you, mister. The Rapist. A film made by women for men. See how you like it. And of course, it's not hard to draw a direct line between certain sketches and Red Dwarf itself. Enjoying an evening on the town, and you've had too much to drink? If you're paralytic, pie-eyed, or just plain sozzled, why not stagger into the Maj Tahal Indian restaurant? We prepare the finest traditional Indian food for the gourmet who's boxed out of his brain. Talk too loudly, swear and shout a lot in the authentic atmosphere of the Orient. Savour the delights of our delicious tandoori cuisine, or better still, spill it all over our tablecloths. Insult our staff, flick onions at one another and talk in a loud voice about Alsatians and how you know this restaurant where one was found in the fridge. The Maj Tahal Indian Restaurant. Indian food for the diner who's smashed out of his mind. Within throwing up distance of this cinema. Then why not drop in at the Titan Taj Mahal Indian Restaurant? Enjoy the finest tandoori cuisine at one-fifth gravity. Just a short space walk from this cinema. There is only one sketch in the whole series that they'd later pilfer directly for Red Dwarf, but we'll come to that later. Regardless, the themes are plain to see throughout. Hello, and welcome to Speaking Backwards. Ah, as I should say, you try that. Good. Spotton. Or, as I should say, no Today, we'll be looking at some grammatical rules for speaking backwards. Spelling. Remember, E before I, except before C. E before I, except before C. Or, as I should say, Your sentence must always end with a capital letter. And of course, if you're writing any jokes, God help us, or should I say, no. always begin with the punchline. But first, some practical applications for speaking backwards. Let us take shopping. The first thing you will want to do, of course, is walk into the shop and say, goodbye. Next, you will say, I'll take half a dozen. Wrap them up. And finally, you will say, Hello, how are you? 
And now, to end, we have vocabulary expansion, and today's word is erschik. Can you say it? Erschik. Or, conversely, forwards, cliché. Disappointingly, the backwards speech in that sketch is just the same dialogue as the forward bits. No secret messages about robbing bastards or square-headed bald gits. Elsewhere in the series, there's plenty of evidence that Rob and Doug have always been obsessed with the same things. And coming up soon, Simon Malloy will be talking to film director Steven Spielberg about his latest film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They'll be chatting about how come alien beings who traveled 450 million light years across the universe to visit the planet Earth happen to be carrying with them a Hammond organ. There's definitely more than a hint of the cat in this sketch about a sergeant major. Bayesian lavender! Bayesian lavender! Bayesian lavender clash! Don't they, Skinner? Yes, Sodge. What do they do? They clash, Sodge. You ain't got no panache, have you, Skinner? No oat culture? Pardemode de dressage? No, Sodge. Exactement! And then there's this from a sketch about a chess tournament. Now, Lubchek about to make his first move in the first game, Brian. Pawn to King 4, his favourite opening move. No shit, it's Robin Doug's favourite opening move. My move is Pawn, right? That's the little knobbly ones down the front. <laughs> pawn to King 4. A computer's got to do what a computer's got to do. Let battle commence. Pawn to King 4. Overall, while the promising signs are there, there's a distinct roughness to cliché in both the style and content. Robin Doug's raw talent is just in the process of becoming refined. Let's compare two versions of what is essentially the same joke, one from Cliché in 1981 and one from Red Dwarf in 1988. It's perfectly simple. For me, it's a spiritual malaise. I can't believe in God. All theology seems too arbitrary, too incredible. So I choose to believe in in small, green, bug-eyed monsters from an alternative dimension. I mean, you've got to stay sane, right? What do you believe in then? Do you believe in God? God, certainly not. What a preposterous thought. I believe in aliens, Lister. Same punchline, but it hits harder due to the snappier writing, while the setup is much quicker and more natural sounding as a result of being reworked as a dialogue between two well defined characters. But what Cliche did have going for it was Robin Doug's playfulness, that sense of a couple of naughty schoolboys poking fun at authority, such as how the producer was credited each week. Cliche was produced in Manchester by Ron McDonnell. Good night, Mr. McDonnell. <laughs> They also played around a little with the conventions of the medium, with a spoof continuity announcement following the credits each week, giving details of what fabulous cliché merchandise was available. Some of you may be interested to know a cliché record is available from most record stores, price £4.99. A book of the series is also on sale, price £3.50. Also on sale is the cliché 413 four-wheel drive loading shovel with a Carlston Brown swivel head, price £4,000. Also available, the special new cliché jar of mollusk spawn with highlights from the series on the label from most seafood stores, price 95p. The most ludicrous comedy merchandise ever devised, or at least it was until that time reddwarf.co.uk was selling a branded toolkit. Cliché also featured frequent musical numbers, showcasing the early songwriting attempts from the duo who would later pen a number one single. This song from the first episode is perhaps my personal favourite sketch of the whole series. Pop 
Population getting high, people older when they die. Now it's time for us to try euthanasia. World resources getting low, some of us have got to go. It's not suicide, oh no, it's euthanasia. Euthanasia will amaze you. And as the song suggested, Rob and Doug weren't afraid to bump off something that had had its day, in order that a newer generation might benefit. And so, after one series, Cliché begat Son of Cliché, and it was all change. Only one cast member carried over to the new iteration, that being Nick Maloney, who incidentally was originally cast to play George McIntyre in the end, but ultimately wasn't available when production was rescheduled. Joining him were fellow Nick, Nick Wilton, a regular on the Grant Naylor penned Carrot's Lib, who would later, by complete coincidence, play a recurring character on EastEnders called Mr. Lister. Plus, of course, a young up-and-coming comic performer by the name of Christopher Barry will take his Red Dwarf credentials as Red. Composer Peter Brewis joined the team, fresh from his work on Not the Nine O'Clock News and The Young Ones. Producer Alan Nixon had cut his teeth on the great Radio 4 training ground weekending, and would later go on to produce Absolutely. While never receiving the same plaudits as the likes of the comic strip or the Saturday Live regulars, this was a formidable collection of some of the brightest talents in alternative comedy. The addition of a studio audience also gave the new show a much different dynamic to its predecessor. Son of Cliché was faster paced than Cliché, more ambitious and varied in its comedy targets, and crucially, much, much funnier. Before we start going through the many, many links between Son of Cliché sketches and Robin Doug's later work, let's enjoy a few standalone highlights, sketches that struck me whilst listening through as examples of Grant Naylor's less celebrated classics. We present Dr. Fitzwilliam, Village Rectologist. <laughs> Delicious breakfast, Isaac. Another piece of fried bread, if you could spare it. Ah, that's the wonderful thing about the Highlands. Fresh air and fresh food. I'd ne'er swap it for a practice in Harley Street. Uh, doctor, I hope I'm not intruding. Ah, Johnny, come in, man. Uh, I wonder if you could help me, Doctor. I'm, I've been having a wee spot of trouble with my bottom. <laughs> well, if it's trouble downstairs and round the back, you're at the right place. Aye, <laughs> Angus the blacksmith was fair impressed with how you cured his behind. Aye, well, it's only what I'm trained for. Aye, <laughs> sir. Spot more tea, perhaps? Uh, so I was wondering, Doctor, perhaps we could uh, nip into your surgery and you could give me a wee examination. Oh, man, I'm having me breakfast here. Just get your bricks doing and on the table. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> that's what Angus said. You weren't a man to stand on ceremony. I'll just slip me wee rubber gloves on. Eyes <laughs> are these eggs delicious. <laughs> just nice and soft, how I like them. Uh, see the problem, Donny? Yeah. Eyes Perhaps a few more toasty soldiers. Hey. 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 A B. A B. A B. See? 
She! Huh? Hi! Hi, Jay! Kate? Kate? try to think pure, clean thoughts, and it's our job to make you think dirty. <laughs> Here we go. A boy and a girl are walking through a forest. Between them, they're carrying a bag of peas. They're not his peas, they're... songs I ever wrote, I wrote for you. And since you left, I feel cut in half. In my album, all that's left is your photo. Angel, I cry myself to sleep each night alone. And I spend all day just sitting by the television. I just can't believe you've made the right choice. You are my inspiration. You are my everything. You're every word I ever write and every song I write. And I miss you most, my darling, in the middle of the day. I wonder why you ever went abroad. Grant Naylor's playfulness also went up a notch with Son of Cliché. One of its most subversive features was how it would regularly end the show with comedic segues between the credits and the continuity announcements. Leslie, Leslie, wake up, Leslie. Look, you do the link, come on. You do the link and I'll make you some black coffee, all right. Oh, God, what's that down your front? It's disgusting. Look, hang on, I'll go and get a hanky and wipe your chin. Look, just see if you can read this. Can you see? Okay, make a joke about it, ignore it, anything, but, but try and sound sober. Don't believe a word of it. Son of Cliché was recorded at the Gate Theatre at the Latchmere Battersea. I love the idea of those poor continuity announcers having no choice but to participate in the show's comedy. Most of the time, they'd join in the fun. I'll just squeeze past. Oh, excuse me. Would you mind those cream cakes, please? Can you just stop eating just for one minute while I... Look, oh, yeah, it's gone all over my clothes. Right, OK, fine. There you go. There's the mic. Uh, see you next week. Actually, it isn't a cheeseburger. It's a half-pounder dripping with chilli and barbecue sauce with, of course, triple French fries delicious. Whereas on one or two occasions, they sounded genuinely pissed off. 
Hermann Goering, the year is 1941, and you and Frau Goering meet someone who is destined to become a lifelong friend and the most feared and ruthlessly efficient torturer in the entire SS. Hermann Goering, can you remember this voice? Son of Cliché was recorded at the Gate Theatre at the Latchmere Battersea in London. Each episode of the first series was given a certain theme, with linking material between the sketches providing extra dollops of comedy on top. Episode 2 had a vaguely Twilight Zone feel, something that the duo would later develop into the ultimately unmade anthology format, the Ui U Dimension, before Rob returned to the concept with his much later radio sketch show, The Nether Regions. Welcome to the Weird Dimension. For the next half hour, we have total control over your radio set. We can reduce the volume until it's almost a whisper. We can increase the volume until the noise is almost unbearable. We can adjust the balance so my voice only comes out of the left-hand speaker. Oh, we can adjust the balance so my voice is only... Your right-hand speaker isn't working. And episode 5 was presented as a NASA probe, featuring some very dwarfy concepts. By the time you hear this message, both I and my kind will almost certainly be extinct. I am from a planet we call Earth. This probe, containing this recorded message together with various human artifacts, was launched by NASA in 1983 in the hope of reaching an alien intelligence. On my planet, the highest of the species is man, and the lowest of the species is a man who works in a post office. Yes, Rob and Doug clearly had their favourite comedy targets already in their sights at this stage, and there are so many examples. But by far the, uh, the most important lesson I ever learned about cinema was what Federico Fellini taught me. He said, in cinema, cinema, never, never, never have one of those hot dogs. <laughs> the, the bread is always stale and, and the meat, you don't know what it is. So many things we don't have any explanation for. Like, um, why do intelligent people buy cinema hot dogs? Do you mean that sort of weird and mysterious thing? In 1545, a man called Michel de Nostradam sat alone in his study. In front of him was a bowl of water. Through his power of the occult, he would make the water ripple and mist, and in its depths there appeared visions of the future, the visions so uncannily accurate he was able to predict that a great plague would sweep through Europe called James Last and his orchestra. There are many things that men are hard put to explain. How was a pyramid built? What is that panty girdle doing in the back seat of your car? The Bermuda Triangle. Why is it that so many writers have mysteriously made so much money from this small stretch of ocean? No, I agree, Dave, that is a genuine mystery. How did a song like that ever become a hit? <laughs> this week in Son of Cliché magazine, a world exclusive. The man who was nearly a Beatle. He knew them all and could have been one of the group. But for an ironic twist of fate, he could have been one of the fabulous Beatles. Read his heart-wrenching story. In Son of Cliché, this week. I was nearly a Beatle by Ringo Starr. <laughs> And it wasn't just the writers that were honing the skills that would launch their careers into the stratosphere, as the show boasted a talented young impressionist among its ranks. Now, my queen's in danger. <laughs> I must... No, no. I must watch his knight. 
Because as my producer said, he said... He said no, good heavens, no. No, I'm, I'm not funny. Allegations I know have been made that I am senile, incompetent, and unfit for office. But as President of the United States of America, I represent these leaks. I resent these leaks. I also know I've been accused in the past of rambling, but I've never had a crocodile. And welcome back. And you join us at the extraordinarily interesting stage of things. It's a land piece of the one, the one, the one, one fifteen at Doncaster. <laughs> because we understand our cameras were in Newcastle. Extraordinary. Remarkable. <laughs> and, and I think we're, we're, in fact, no, we are, we're ready to go over to David Coleman back <laughs> in the studio. Welcome back. And, Afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Lords, where we've had a fine day's cricket out there today, despite the cancellation of the original match against uh, South Africa. Chile stepped in at the last minute, and the match went ahead as planned. Let's take a look at the England scorecard. Chris Tavare caught and disappeared Mendoza. Without troubling the scorers, what's new? Fowler, missing, presumed dead, 25. <laughs> David Gow, bayoneted to death by Sanchez, 43. <laughs> Lamb, stumped by a sharp knife, 27. Good effort, that, I thought. <laughs> Ian Botham, LBW, living but weak. That last one, of course, is Chris doing the late great cricket commentator Richie Benno just as he did on the David Essex Showcase, as featured in Red Dwarf Knight's Universe Challenge. Good evening. What a marvellous day we've had at Huddingley today. There's been no cricket, but we've still had a marvellous day. You may recall yesterday that uh, Jeff Boycott was out there all day. He eventually scored a single. <laughs> that's, what, uh, that's what we in Australia call a fair suck of the sauce bottle. Just like in Cliché, the common Grant Naylor themes were plain to see throughout Son of Cliché. And just like in Cliché, one of them involved Indian restaurants. At last, you have a chance to buy 20 golden Indian restaurant tracks. <laughs> All your favourite Indian restaurant tunes brought together on one fabulous album. Who can forget? <laughs> or the more up-tempo... <laughs> Or, if you're feeling blue, perhaps you'd prefer... Something for every mood. Even the haunting... And to help you recapture the oriental magic of your local tandoori curry house, we're giving away free, with every album, 14 pints of lager and a bucket. Incidentally, that was one of two sketches that for some reason featured in both the first and the second episodes of the series. In the Red Dwarf 6 of the Best CD, Rob and Doug talk about how they were extremely late in delivering the scripts for Son of Cliché, which is one of the reasons that, out of sheer desperation, Doug relented to Rob's nagging to write a science fiction sketch. Spoilers for later on in this podcast, but said science fiction sketch debuted in episode 2, so could it be that they ran out of time on this episode to such a degree that it ended up running short, and had to be padded out with a couple of repeats of sketches from the previous week? Even more incidentally... The version of the sketch that you heard just then was the one from episode 2, 
as this is one of only four episodes that have been repeated in full broadcast quality on BBC Radio 4 Extra, the others being Series 2, Episodes 1, 4 and 5. We can only assume that the other 12 episodes are missing from the archive, but once again, thankfully, we have our fair recordings of the whole lot. Uh, where were we? Oh yes, sketches reminiscent of bits of Red Dwarf. Take this from the very first episode. Men, are you lonely, shy, unsure of yourself and have trouble meeting girls? Then read the incredible new book by psychologist Dr. Richard Golding and never be stuck for a date. How to meet more girls by kidnapping them. (laughs) Bet you thought he was going to say by hypnosis, didn't you? Next, the second episode gives us a sketch featuring Romulus, the founder of ancient Rome, who, legend has it, was raised by wolves, eating at a modern-day restaurant. The lamb, the lamb, is it dead? Yes, it is, oh. yes. But if you're worried about it, I'll give it another bash to make sure. No, 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 no that's, that's half the fun with the lamb, chasing them, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah. Have you got anything else on the menu that uh, will give me a bit of a chase? Uh, not really. Uh, the only thing we've got that moves are the fish. Not really much of a spot. Damn. Well, I'll just have a small helping of marabone jelly then, please. Yes, ordered, sir. A small yeah. Are you sure you wouldn't like your fish cooked? No, sir. I like my food to move. Sticking with ancient Rome, a sketch from episode 7 involved actors performing a play that had been translated from the original text by a first-year Latin student the results of which are strangely reminiscent of one of Red Dwarf's most iconic moments. Come, O Amorpheus, fatigue enslaves your features. Come, sit and rest your weary arms. No, young boy, for the standing is much something something. (laughs) Something rampart and shield. Something, something. Aye, something. Aye, in the road, something, something, something entails. And in many tellings, this history will be related. Aye. And then there's the sketch from episode six, where an alien goes to the barbers. Cut and blow dry, is it? Yes. I would like it closely cropped on the skull region with a long plate over each ear. Uh, what about your second head? My second head, I wish to be completely shaven. Uh, what about your third head? My final head shall remain uncropped, save for a single blue streak which shall bisect my occipital and parietal regions thus. Do you want any conditioner? No. No. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You've been here before, have you? No. I thought not. I thought I hadn't seen you before. Are you telling me this guy belonged to a video club and he needed a card so they'd recognise him? He's got six eyes and three noses. If it were me, I'd remember him. Aren't you the bloke who came in last week, sneezed and caused a monsoon? Yes, some very dwarfy concepts started life in Son of Cliché. Let's skip ahead to Series 2, Episode 6, where the seed of another of Red Dwarf's most celebrated scenes was first sown. Coming soon to your cinema, a new regime of terror. Something so foul and sick you'll never feel safe again. Attack of the Killer Italian Wifrance. <laughs> it started in a textile research foundation. John, I won't allow it, John. We've put too much money in this project to call it off now. John, uh, I know we wanted to develop an elastic that gave the most support and the snuggest fit. So it shrinks a little? John... John, it shrinks to the size of a postage stamp on contact with human body heat. Jeff, 
Jeff, I released 100,000 pairs onto the market yesterday. Oh, my God! My God, John! Those underpants are killing machines! Hi, Mike! How was the gym class? Great! I feel real good about myself. Ah, I really uh, do. You want a massage? No, I feel fine. These new underpants give me a heck of a lot of support, man. Oh, they really yeah. do. What's wrong, Mike? Oh, my God. What is it? Get my underpants off. What? Get them off? God, help me get them off. They're shrinking. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. They're shrinking all the time. They're too tight. Oh, my God. And, of course, there are some sketches and sequences that would later be lifted wholesale and reused elsewhere, sometimes completely verbatim. Before we get to the dwarfy ones, here's an interesting case of a son of cliché sketch that was subsequently repurposed as a comic relief skit, performed by Pamela Stevenson as part of the very first Red Nose Day in 1988. Let's dissect the two versions of the sketch and play them in segments side by side, so that you can see how the topical references were updated in the intervening five years. Good evening, here is the news. Princess Anne has arrived in Swaziland today on the first leg of her South African tour. Hello, my name is Donald. But the trip has caused a controversy because the princess stopped off at Johannesburg Airport on her way there. I'm the man who types out the news sheets. <laughs> this move is seen by some anti-apartheid groups as a sign of implicit approval. This is my last day at the BBC. President Gorbachev has arrived in Peking today on the first leg of his Chinese tour. Hello, my name is Donald. He was met at the airport by a crowd of half a million cheering Chinese troops. I'm the man who types out the news sheets. <laughs> the trip is seen as an important new step in the programme of Glasnost. This is my last day at the BBC. Tory MP John Thurwell launched a shock attack on the government tonight over its handling of public sector pay rises. And quite frankly, I don't give a monkeys anymore. <laughs> he accused them of being arrogant and heartless over the issue. My leaving party went on all afternoon, and quite honestly, I'm rat-assed. <laughs> Mr. Thurwell pointed out that civil service pay had fallen in relation to the private sector by more than 15%. I'm leaving, I'm smashed, and I feel bloody great. Labour MP John Thurwell launched a broadside attack on the government tonight over its handling of public sector pay rises. And quite frankly, I don't give a monkey's anymore. <laughs> he accused them of being arrogant and heartless over the issue. My leaving party went on all afternoon, and quite honestly, I'm rat-arsed. <laughs> Mr. Thurwell pointed out that civil service pay had fallen in relation to the private sector by more than 15%. I'm leaving, I'm smashed, and I feel bloody great. In Rome today, the Pope got married. Yes, I can make you say anything. <laughs> After a brief ceremony in the registry office, the Pope and his bride, Freddie Laker, flew off for their honeymoon to the small island of Belgium in the Dutch East Indies. In Rome today, the Pope got married. Yes, I can make you say anything. <laughs> After a brief ceremony in a registry office, the Pope and his bride, Demis Roussos, <laughs> flew off for their honeymoon to the small island of Belgium in the Dutch East Indies. The, the city, city and the Financial, and the financial Times, Times index, index rose today, then fell off its chair and had a fight with the pig. The, <laughs> the spokesman, spokesman said, said, would you like to, you buy, like to buy some, some of, of my spokes? spokes? <laughs> And finally, on a lighter note, 14 people were massacred today in Kent by a man with a flamethrower. 14 people were massacred today in Kent by a runaway rhinoceros. A relative of the deceased said, We're all jolly glad. 
That's it. Next news at Christmas. Till then, good heavens. Another classic skit that was very nearly fully formed at this stage appeared in the guise of a newsflash in Series 1, Episode 7. And we interrupt this program to go straight over to the newsroom. Here's a newsflash. Archaeologists working in the Sinai Desert have discovered what they believe to be an authentic page from the Bible. This short statement was released moments ago by Dr. Franz Luber. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you must understand. This page has yet to be authenticated. Although, pre- yes, gentlemen, although preliminary tests have shown it to be of the period in question. Uh, standard, Dr. Luber, can you read out the page? Uh, Daily Cliche, where is the page? Uh, which part of the book is the page from, sir? Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. If it is an authentic page, it is not included in the current versions of the Bible. The page is not numbered. However, I believe it belongs near the beginning of the Old Testament. I will now read a translation of the page. The Bible, to my darling Candy. (laughs) The characters and situations in this work are wholly fictional and imaginable. (laughs) And any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. By the same author, the New Testament and Testament 3. All your favorite characters back again for another zany adventure. That is all, gentlemen. The page has been universally condemned by church leaders. Next, as anybody who owns the Body Snatcher collection could tell you, Danny John Jules was not the first person to sing a Grant Naylor Penn song called Tongue Tied, and nor was Howard Goodall the first to set one to music. For back in the final episode of the first series of Son of Cliché, Nick Wilton and Peter Brewis combined to give us this. It was just a winter's night in London town. The streets outside were Ida down. Mr. Moon Man wore a frown, then spring glued inside. As our eyes met across some crowded room, I felt my heart go boom, boom, boom. The rocket ship went zoom, 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 and you left me. Tongue-tied, tongue-tied, tongue-tied Whenever you're near Cause I'm tongue-tied, tongue-tied My brain goes in a spin and I forget what room I'm in Is it noise, is it day, and is it June, or is it mm-mm? The only thing I know is that I'll never let you go Although you always
For my money, while this is not necessarily a better song than the one we're all used to, it is a more effective comedy song, with each subsequent iteration in Parallel Universe and Danny's 1993 single moving further away from the core idea of a singer stumbling over his words. But anyway, unbeknownst to Radio 4 listeners back on the 30th of August 1983, those who tuned in to the second ever episode of Son of Cliché were witness to a pivotal moment in British comedy history. It all started with one single solitary standalone sketch. Let's fire up the aforementioned six of the best CD so that Robin Doug can set the scene. And so it was actually a complete nightmare. We had like three hours to write half a show. <clears throat> and I said, you know, we should write that, this science fiction. I didn't do it. I said, OK, go, let's do it. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't know what the, to do. I just didn't know what to do. Uh, I thought, all right, you bastard. <laughs> And uh, so we wrote this uh, this sketch, which is about uh, the last human being left alive on a ship that's been rampaged by a, an alien. Uh, yeah, it was Dave Holland's first cadet, but which was sort of a parody of Alien, wasn't it? Sort of, when it started out. Parody of Alien? Yeah, because it was sort of after Alien had wiped out the crew, but instead of it being a woman, it was a guy. And he was going slowly space crazy because he just had his computer to keep him company. Yeah. The strange planet you shouldn't really land on. This is Stellar Trader, Dave Hollins, calling Earthcom number K57. My craft, Scion 4, is locked in a decaying orbit around a Class II planet. The main drives have gone and there is no power left in the Starhopper. I'm at a planet that has two suns and seven moons. My AA number is Hall 71482. <laughs> A bioscan prelim has indicated living matter on the planet's surface. It is intelligent, but basic. Just above vegetable, but just below teacher training student. <laughs> I'm abandoning Scion and tubing down to the surface. Zilge, the occupant of the craft is about to arrive in input two. What be he like? Zilge, several of his legs are missing, and there are many holes in his face. I must scurry and greet him. I bid thee solstice, traveler. You must have hunger and weariness. Come, I bid thee dine with me and my seven husbands. Husbands? You have seven husbands? You seem querulous. How many husbands do you have? I don't have any husbands. Oh, a nephron. <laughs> Is that how you reproduce here, with a husband? Seven husbands. Oh. Eight of us must get together to perform a nagor to produce the children. That's incredible. What's it like? Oh, a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, how many children do you produce at one of these nagors? Oh, enough for two or three meals. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to explode. I beg your pardon. It must have been something I strangled. <laughs> Where be you from, traveler? Me? I'm from Earth. Earth? Yep. The planet Earth? That's right. Do you know a guy called Jan Vogels? <laughs> no. Come on, he came from Earth. <laughs> Jan Vogel. No, 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 I don't know him. You must know him. Jan, short guy with red hair. No, I told you, I don't know him. He came from Holland on Earth in the 8th century Earth time. No, no, it's the wrong period, and I've never been to Holland. Jan Vogels. 
He had holes in his face. He put food in. And when we told him what it was, the food would come out again. <laughs> Jan Vogels. No, I, look, I don't know him. Jan Vogels. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, 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 I know him. Jan Vogels, oh, yeah, I know Jan. Yeah, Jan Vogels, that's right. Now, can we go to your city now? I need some fuel for my craft. Mm, of course. Oh, but what must you think of my manners? We haven't passed greetings. Come, we must decapitate each other and exchange heads for an hour. <laughs> Funny. That's what happened to Jan Vogel. <laughs> for many years, it was assumed that very little from this original sketch ever made it to actual Red Dwarf, until the Body Snatcher Collection brought us this gem from the archives, a snippet of an unmade Red Dwarf script, as recreated by Chris Barry. What is the time period of your origin? The 22nd century. The 22nd century? Yes. The 22nd century. Do you know a guy called Bill? He lived in the 22nd century. Bill what? I can't recall his second name. Bill, short guy with red hair. No, doesn't ring a bell, I'm afraid. He came from the 22nd century. Bill, you must have bumped into him. Sorry. Bill, about this high, always wore a sports jacket. His name was Bill. After that initial sketch, Dave Hollins would feature much more prominently in the second series, which started on the 4th of November 1984. The format was slightly tweaked, the theme linking material largely being done away with in favour of sketches or characters that recurred a number of times throughout each episode. While they seemingly lost interest in the idea as the series went on, the first few eps each had a guest host. Please welcome this week's guest host, Mr. Freddie Fortune, clairvoyant comic. Thank you. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> clairvoyant me. Now, I must just explain, if you don't know me, I tell jokes that aren't funny now. But in six months' time, they'll be hysterical. Now, this, this particular show, you see, is recorded a couple of months before it goes out. They've drafted me in to do some topical jokes. <laughs> now, they won't, no, no, no. They, they, they won't be funny tonight, but very funny when it gets transmitted. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right, so here we go. <clears throat> Here's something that really annoys me. That man. You know who I mean. He's everywhere, isn't he? He is. Hey. Flop, diflop, 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 diflop. It makes you sick, doesn't it? It does. You can't turn the telly on without flop, diflop, 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 diflop. Six months ago, we never heard of him. And after both Cliché and the first series of Son of Cliché were composed entirely of standalone one off sketches, Rob and Doug allowed themselves to rely on a handful of recurring series throughout the second run. There were four main ones, which we'll tackle in ascending order of dwarfiness. First, bearing the least resemblance to the later Magnus Opus, yet arguably the funniest and most successful running sketch, was... Saturday Serials present the further reasonably exciting adventures of Captain Invisible and his faithful sidekick, the See-Through Kid. Our favourite one, the, the biggest hit, was uh, Captain Invisible and the See-Through Kid, Kid, which was about two superheroes who couldn't see each other. Or find the invisible car. And or any of the invisible <laughs> gadgets. <laughs> okay, see through kid, here's the plan. We go, kid. 
Kid, where are you? Ah, I'm right here, Captain Invisible. Ah, I thought you'd gone. No, 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 I'm standing here beside you. Okay, here's the plan. We... How do you know you're standing beside me? Because I'm right here with you in the laboratory. But I'm in the computer room. Oh. Look, just stay where you are. Don't move. Okay. Okay, here's the plan. Right? Are you there? I was nodding. I was nodding. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Here's the plan. Uh, excuse me, don't stand so close. I can, I can feel your breath on my nose. What have you been eating? I thought you were sitting in the chair. I am sitting in the chair. Ah, well, that's not my breath. <laughs> they didn't know where they were, either of them, did they? No, they no, could never but, find it. Well, and it was like, you know, okay, kid, let's go, let's go, and they'd both be sitting in the back of the car. <laughs> no time to waste, kid. The invisible car. Right, kid, let's go. Let's go. Go, 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 go. With you all the way, Cap. Let's go. Let's go get him. G-O, go. Not a second to lose. Right. Let's go. Go. Yep. Go. We're both sitting in the back seat. There was a great, there was a great mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> and you can probably guess. Kid, you're alive. Not for much longer, Captain. I'm going first. Don't worry, kid. I'll give you mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Just hold on. Okay. <laughs> uh, Captain... Don't try and talk, kid. But, but, uh, Captain... Don't talk, kid, while I'm giving you mouth-to-mouth. Yeah, but, uh, Captain, I I think there's something we should discuss. Oh, no, kid. Something terrible's happened. Oh, no. In the accident, you seem to have lost all your teeth. My poor buddy. Somehow your nose has been turned inside out. (laughs) And so another tedious adventure reaches its boring conclusion. Chris Barry clearly about to corpse there. Next up, with probably only a handful more things in common with Dwarf, was Asso, Spanish detective, which many years later Doug planned to revive as an animated series hosted on reddwarf.co.uk. Needless to say, that never happened. But along with Captain Invisible, it was also a candidate that Rob and Doug considered when deciding which son of cliché sketch to adapt into their first television sitcom. Back to six of the best for the details. There was another um, little mini sitcom we did called Asso, Spanish Detective. Asso, Spanish Detective. Which I loved. Yes. Uh, it was about this detective who was stuck on this small uh, Spanish island, a private detective, and he was uh, hopelessly out of time and he, he had uh, like big wing collars it was so big and sharp that he would wheel around and scar people on the face and slice the necks. And he had uh, flares that were so huge, he would get flare whiplash whenever it was windy. And platforms and shoes that he used to fall off on with that. Spanish TV presents... A-S-S-O. Asso, Spanish detective. Smirk was dead. A hundred sombre silhouettes stood, heads bowed around the grave, and the dull twilight drizzle whipped down in neat parallel lines. I turned up my shirt collar against the rain. Somehow it formed a funnel which channeled the rain. Down the small of my back and in, 
through my underpants. And he used to, he used to go in. He'd be in the middle of a story, and he'd have the wrong flashback. <laughs> Somebody else's flashback. <laughs> Silently, I slipped a pair of socks down the front of my underpants, <laughs> and I pulled on my white flared trousers. As I lined up the edge of my shirt collar with my shoulder, <laughs> I started to think back, back to the beginning of this case. I was in my office playing my harp. <laughs> so we seriously thought of doing that as well, mm. but we couldn't sort of compress it into a, a, a sort of a, a viable sitcom thing. And also, it was it was, it was xenophobic. <laughs> yes, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, slightly xenophobic. Yeah. But nobody minds you being xenophobic about Spaniards. <laughs> No. Apart from apart from, apart from Spanish, uh, Spanish people, which is, that is yeah. odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. it's strange yeah. where they yeah. should feel that way. Such concerns didn't prevent them from lifting one section of dialogue from the very first Asso sketch almost verbatim into the first Red Dwarf novel. I pulled on a cigarette and gulped down some more coffee. What could be better than Spanish cigarettes and Spanish coffee, except maybe having your whole body vigorously rubbed by a man with a cheese grater? <laughs> he poured what remained of the coffee into the flask lid and lit a cigarette. What could be nicer, he thought, than smoking Spanish tobacco and drinking real Spanish coffee? Except possibly having your whole body vigorously rubbed by a man with a cheese grater. It seems that the one recurring sketch they didn't consider turning into a sitcom, or at least didn't discuss on Six of the Best, was this. And now, Freshers, the story of first-year university students. This week, going to the party. So, listen, are you ready for this party or what? No, no, uh, because something really oddball has happened, actually. Uh, oh, right. I've been at university now for eight days, right? Mm-hmm. I worn on my clothes. <laughs> I put them in the laundry basket, but, mm-hmm. but when I come to look in the chest of drawers, there's no clean ones there. Right. Hey, it's really that's... strange, isn't it? Weird. Yeah, that's... yeah. Because at home, they used to transfer from the laundry basket into the drawer. <laughs> and they'd, uh, you know, they'd be ironed and they'd smell nice. But now they just... Stay in the laundry basket and smell really awful. The characters in Freshers, despite outward appearances, clearly share a lot of common DNA with Lystra and Rimmer. Just look at their taste in posters. Have you uh, got your posters up yet? Yeah, I mean, I've got some really groovy posters. Yeah? You know, they're not the usual kind you see in every student's home, Ooh. you know what I mean? Uh, I think it's important to be that little bit different. What you got, then? I've got a uh, Desiderata poster. LAUGHTER <laughs> A chimpanzee sitting on a toilet. (laughs) And a girl rubbing her bottom with a tennis ball. Yes, I've got them. But by far the biggest crossover between Freshers and Red Dwarf takes place in the very first sketch. Our duo are at that favourite Grant Naylor haunt, the Indian restaurant, when the conversation turns to exams. Still got some gut rot, eh? Yeah, I think think it's the exams, you know, the, the, the pressure got to me. Yeah, it certainly did in philosophy. You're not kidding. I could have walked that exam if I hadn't had that spasm. Right. <laughs> Terry was saying you just wrote I am a fish 400 times. <laughs> Got up, did a jitterbug round the room and keeled over. Yes. Well, yes, I, well, I think I was a bit keyed up. It surprised me because you seemed to really have it together. Mm. You had that big revision timetable, didn't you, with all the different colours for each subject and study periods and rest periods and everything. You seemed to have the whole of the last four weeks pretty well mapped out. 
Yeah. That timetable took me three weeks to make and I had to cram all my revision into the last four days. <laughs> the, the, the only subject I did any good in was industrial management. Which of the essays did you do? Oh, all 25. Mm. <laughs> but some of them were only about six lines long. I don't know. I don't know how they expect you to do 25 proper essays in an hour and a half anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's only like three minutes an essay. Oh, right. I thought you were only supposed to do three. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> three essays and the compulsory question, yeah. which is worth 75%. What compulsory question? The one over the page. <laughs> uh, waiter, can I have a glass of water, please, for the gentleman who's jitterbugging over here? <laughs> Cheers. One of the most fundamental and defining aspects of Rimmer's character throughout the first couple of series and the novels was his ineptitude with exams, and it's all here in Son of Cliché, even down to the iconic I am a fish. And it's weird in hindsight to have Chris Barry playing the other character in this dynamic. But, as you probably guessed, the fourth and final running sketch from Son of Cliché Series 2 was, of course... Dave Hollands, Space Cadet. There were four further sketches in the series, and we'll go through them all one by one. But just to spoil your enjoyment of the sketches themselves, I'll pause and point out the bits that later got recycled as we go. First up, from episode 2 of series 2, the one sketch that Robin Doug would later turn to above all others when up against it with writing Red Dwarf. This is Stellar Trader Dave Hollands calling Earthcom 597-7. I have just emerged from a dimension null. <laughs> I'm the lone survivor. According to Hab, the ship's computer, I am seven trillion light years away from Earth. I've got three music cassettes. <laughs> it's not going to be enough. <laughs> My biggest problem is going space-crazy through loneliness. The only thing that keeps me sane is my collection of onions. <laughs> In Holly's distress call intro to the episode Queeg, it's potatoes rather than onions, and singing ones at that. I have decided to build an android in the image of a woman. A perfectly functioning robot, capable of abstract thought and independent decision-making. But I don't know how. <laughs> Jesus. I don't even know what to make the nose out of. Once again, it's Holly that inherits this piece of dialogue, in both confidence and paranoia, and Infinity welcomes careful drivers. Hello, Dave. Why does it have? The Melissa 5 is being tracked by two Supra Lightspeed Pulsar fighters from Earth, representing the Norweb Federation. Who's that, Hap? The Northwestern Electricity Board. <laughs> God, they've done real well for themselves. <laughs> What do, they, what do they want, Hap? They want you for your crimes against humanity, Dave. What? Dave, remember when you left Earth seven trillion years ago? Uh... You left two half-eaten German sausages on a plate in your kitchen. Oh, oh, yeah, I remember. Do you know what happens to sausages if you leave them for seven trillion years? <laughs> they go off? Those sausages, Dave, now cover seven-eighths of the Earth's surface. Yeah! Not only that, Dave, you also left 57 pounds 50 in your bank account. Well? 
a compound interest on that now means you own 98% of all the world's wealth. And because you've hoarded it all for seven trillion years, nobody's got any money except for you and Norweb. <laughs> well, why Norweb? You left the light on in the bathroom. <laughs> Dave, you've destroyed the world's economy, its ecology, and sent mankind back to the Stone Age. Well, look, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I guess I just wasn't thinking straight. Hello? Mr. Five, come in, please. We are Norweb fighters. We have a final demand here for one million pounds. <laughs> You're the most intelligent machine ever built. What do I do? Hang on, Dave. I'll channel my runtime. Okay. I have it, Dave. You hide under the kitchen table. <laughs> I'll tell them you're out shopping. Good one, Al. Dave Hollands, Space Cadet. It makes sense that Me Squared was the episode that lifted so much dialogue almost word for word from an old sketch, as that was a late addition to Series 1 of Red Dwarf, written as a last-minute replacement for the dropped Body Snatcher script. Using a trick that they'd later fall back on to produce the ending of Queeg, Robin Doug had Holly reveal that the whole Norweb thing was a joke, rather than having an actual Norweb representative turn up at the end. This underlines the key difference between Dave Hollins and Red Dwarf. These sketches are much more of a comedic pastiche of sci-fi, rather than a largely realistic comedy that just happens to have a sci-fi setting. It's fair to say that the rest of the sketches are based on concepts that are fundamentally too silly to work in Red Dwarf, but they're nevertheless a lot of fun. This is Dave Hollins, still a trader Class D, calling Earthcom 7 Beta 7. I'm still alone on the Melissa 5. The others are still dead. <laughs> I'm still 7 trillion light years away from Earth. Yesterday, we hit a space storm. Acid rain, fireballs, meteors, radiation. Brightened up in the afternoon, though. <laughs> Hab, the ship's computer, tells me I've gone space crazy through loneliness. Oh, and a giant chicken has stolen both my hats. <laughs> Dave. What is it, Hab? There's an intruder in the outer rim. Oh, it's not that alien who massacred the crew, is it? If it is, tell him he's not welcome here. No, Dave. It's a different form. I have a bioscan readout. Skin, hard, impervious exterior. Central nervous system, single spine central. Capabilities, limitless. Function, survival. Oh, hell, I don't stand a chance. Height, four inches. Unless maybe... I stand on it. Origin, Earth. Earth? What is it, Hab? It's a biro, Dave. A pen? Hab, a pen is not a creature. Oh, yes, it is, Dave. It's a perfectly developed organism. My God, you admire it, don't you? I admire its perfection, Dave. What am I talking about? It's just a pen. Made by man. No, Dave. The Earth pens, you know, are a colony from the home planet which spread its spores throughout the universe. 
they reproduce by cloning themselves in dark, dry, secluded places, usually the back of a sofa. <laughs> the byproduct of the cloning process is very often a fork and a pink comb. Hab, are you telling me pens are more intelligent than man? Certainly. What, smarter than Einstein even? Einstein was bright, but it was his pen who was the real genius. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't hold it. The creature is moving. It's in the hole, Dave. Moving? How? When pens are ready to leave Earth, they excrete their blue spinal fluid into the pocket of their Earth servant. <laughs> then, over 48 hours, they produce by symbiosis an atomic rocket fuel and blast off for their mother planet. But what does it want, Hab? What's it doing on the ship? I'll broadcast its emotional scan on your audio spectrum. It wants revenge, Dave. <laughs> revenge for its clone you chewed to death. Hab! That pen's insane! It's trying to get out of the hole, Dave. Lock the portals on the uranium cannon. Come on, come on. Okay. Give me visual. Yeah, there he is. Fire, fire, fire! Yeah! <laughs> Calling Earthcom 7B to 7. I killed a pen yesterday. <laughs> I don't feel good about it. I feel silly. <laughs> I don't know whether it was real or whether Hab just made the whole thing up to cure my space madness. Either way, it worked. <laughs> because remember that giant chicken I was ranting about? The one I said stole my hats? Well, I caught him this morning and made him get them back. <laughs> this is Stellar Trader Dave Hollins with nothing further to report. The idea that Hab engineered the situation in order to keep Dave sane definitely has shades of Holly and Lister's dynamic in the early series, although nothing else from this particular sketch made it to the show. In the next Dave Holland sketch, Hab is played by Paul B. Davis, who is standing in for Chris Barry in this episode. This is Stellar Trader Dave Hollins calling Earth Calm 597B-7. I'm the lone survivor of the scout ship Melissa 5 from a routine UEC mining expedition to Titan. I alone escaped by placing myself in suspended animation for 300 years. Should have been two days, but I overslept. <laughs> Still, I suppose I must have needed it. The analogy of an extended stay in suspended animation being akin to sleeping in is also made by the cat in Waiting for God and Crichton in Sirens. Today is my birthday. I am 327 years old. I don't feel it. I should be orbiting the planet Earth, but Earth isn't there. Oh, yes, it is. Sorry, I was looking out the wrong window. <laughs> Just like Holly in Parallel Universe, although in Red Dwarf's case, Earth wasn't outside the other window either. I am now consulting Hab, the command computer. Hello, Dave. Here is your post-suspension update. While you were asleep, the Earth was destroyed by the nuclear holocaust following the Volvo Wars. <laughs> the only surviving life forms are fruit flies, beetles, and P.E. teachers. <laughs> the fruit flies are now the dominant species. In Holly's very first distress call at the start of Future Echoes, he states that his IQ of 6,000 was the same as 6,000 P.E. teachers, clearly a favourite target of Robin Doug's. Wait, Dave. I am receiving a message. Oh, thanks. Transfer it to my sound spectrum, Hab. 
Certainly, Dave. Hello? <laughs> Hello, Melissa Five. You have done superbly well to have catch it here. <laughs> superbly. My name is... Uh, Mickey. Uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey. Mickey, Mickey something. I am the, uh, the leader of the B.E. Teachers Brain Trust. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt, Dave. We have a data outline on the life form you are talking to. He is wearing a tracksuit and trainers and carrying a football and a whistle. He has an IQ. What are? Just an IQ, Dave. <laughs> That's the only reading I'm getting. His greatest intellectual achievement was taking the second form English class for poetry and making them recite it was on the good ship Venus. <laughs> Report ends, Dave. Hab, you've got to get me out of here. Your only chance, Dave, is somehow to find a disturbance in the fabric of time, a cross-dimensional temporal warp, which has the exact magnetic pull to convert you to antimatter and reconstruct your carbon ions in your own spectral field. Oh, look, there's one. <laughs> The convenient get-out to that sketch is rather reminiscent of the effect of the Luck virus in quarantine, where Lister stumbles upon all the things Crichton needs to defeat the hollow virus-infected Rimmer. And finally, the last Dave Hollins sketch is undoubtedly also the weirdest. This is stellar trader Dave Hollins calling Earthcom 7B-7. I'm six trillion years from Earth. I was supposed to spend the journey in suspended animation, but... I don't know, I just couldn't get to sleep. <laughs> I'm circling a class three planet which has three moons. One is volcanic, one is gas, and the other moon is wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Pat, can you give me a bioscan on that moon? Certainly, Dave. It is not, in fact, a moon. It's an enormous fat man floating in space. <laughs> is he alive? Yes, Dave. You see, the planet below has inverted gravity. You mean things fall upwards? Precisely, Dave. Can't be much fun, Shrove Tuesday. <laughs> Goodbye, pancakes. <laughs> they don't toss pancakes, Dave. They bounce them. But if everything goes up, how do the people stay down there? Over the centuries, the Zygons have evolved feet made of Velcro. <laughs> The Zygons are, of course, a race of aliens from Doctor Who, but the very similar-sounding Zargon warships were referenced by Lister in Waiting for God. I've always wondered whether that was supposed to be a direct Doctor Who reference, but Craig just mangled the pronunciation. So in short, Hap, that guy who's the size of a moon ate so much he got ripped up into orbit. <laughs> but what about the Hawaiian shirt? Why is he wearing it outside his trousers? Because, Dave, he believes it makes him look slimmer. <laughs> Can you set up a link with him, Hab? Tell him we're the little spaceship orbiting his waistline. He says he's been up there three years now, Dave. He travels between the moons, propelling himself by burping and breaking wind. Oh, boy. I wouldn't like to be in this star zone when he does a body belch, man. At the moment, Dave, he's stranded. He's completely mined all the pinto beans off both moons. That poor fat guy is stuck out there in that stupid shirt. Can't anybody help him? 
He can never return to the planet's surface. No one can help him. Wait, Dave. Secure yourself shockwave approaching. Oh. What's happening, Ab? Give me Viddy. Look, look. There's another moon now. This moon's wearing a pink smock and yellow slacks. It's his wife, Dave. She spent the last three years eating so she could join him in orbit. What's that she's got with her? It's a giant bag of pinto beans. Look. They're holding hands. Wow. She must be pretty crazy about him. What a love story. There they go. Burping their way into the sunset. <laughs> I don't... I don't think I've ever seen anything so beautiful in all my life. <laughs> what do you say, Hap? I'd just like a second to myself, please, Dave. Sure, have. And when you've got yourself together, let's get out of here. Okay, Dave. Dave Hollins, Space Cadet. On that strangely emotional note, we leave Dave Hollins behind. And there's just one sketch left to discuss, but it's such a big one we had to save it till last. Anyone who read John Hoare's 2015 article, History of a Joke, link in the show notes, will know that there's one idea above all others that Robin Dugg have returned to time and time again. It appears in Cliché, it appears in Son of Cliché, it's in the Red Dwarf TV series and the Red Dwarf novels. And just for fun, let's mash up all four versions so that we can compare and contrast. You'll hear the various sections of this skit in chronological order, starting with Cliché. The final cadences of the last symphony of the Spanish composer Don Dimitri, who died early this morning at the age of 86. Cliché now pays its own special tribute to Don Dimitri, one of the true musical innovators of this century. Hello. Tonight on Profile, we'll be looking at the story of Sir Kevin Kevin Sir. <laughs> Conductor, musician and avant-garde composer. I'm not bored. I've had a really busy morning. I've devised a system to totally revolutionise music. Holly amused himself by devising a system to totally revolutionise music. Don Dimitri's biggest contribution to musical theory was the decorative. Instead of the conventional eight-note scale, the octave, he initiated the ten-note scale, the decorative. He invented two new notes, H and J. But in 1962, he revolutionised music theory when he developed the decorative. Instead of the octave, the normal eight-note scale... The decorative had ten. He invented two new notes, H and J. Yeah, I've decimalised it. <laughs> Instead of the octave, it's the decorative. And I've invented two new notes, H and J. He decided to decimalise it. Instead of the octave, it became the decorative. He invented two new notes, H and J. Instead of uh, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, the decorative would run do, re, mi, fa, so, wo, bo, la, ti, do. And in reverse, do, ti, la, bo, wo, so, fa, mi, re, do. Instead of going do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, the decorative would run do, re, mi, fa, so, wo, bo, la, ti, do. Now it goes do, re, mi, fa, so, la, wo, bo, ti, do. <laughs> do, ti, bo, wo, la, so, fa, mi, re, do. Holly practised his new scale. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, Wo, bo, ti, do. It sounded good. He tried it in reverse. 
do ti bo wo la so fa mi re do and he wrote all his symphonies using the scale indeed and the instruments in his orchestra had to be adapted accordingly pianos were fitted with extra black keys flutes now came in four sections instead of three and accordions were scrapped as the decorative made them far too long for human beings to play trombones ceased to be a musical instrument and now became a lethal weapon and the lengthening of bassoons and uh, saxophones extended the mouthpiece into the region of the lower intestine. Incidentally, in Don Dimitri's orchestra, women were banned from playing the cello. He was bloody balmy. I mean, he was out of his tree. Because of these extra two notes he'd invented, H and J, you couldn't play it on a normal piano. You had to put in all these extra notes between all the other ones. Then eventually the piano was so long, the pianist could only play it by driving up and down the keyboard in a golf cart. <laughs> Flutes came in five sections instead of three, and you had to play it in tandem. One was blowing and one was sucking because you couldn't get the breath to the end. <laughs> and cellos, right, cellos. Well, in his orchestra, women were banned from playing the cello. Well, unless they played it side saddle. All the instruments will be extra big to incorporate my two new notes. Triangles will have four sides. <laughs> Piano keyboards, the length of zebra crossings. Of course, women will have to be banned from playing the cello. All the instruments would have to be extra large to incorporate the two new notes. Triangles with four sides, piano keyboards the length of zebra crossings. The only drawback, as far as Holly could see, was that women would have to be banned from playing the cello unless they had birthing stirrups or elected to play at side saddle. What other significant changes were inspired by the decorative? Time signatures were changed. Instead of 3-4 time, it was now 0.75 time. 7-8 uh, time became 0.875 time, and common time, or 4-4 time, was now simply 1. Don Dimitri's quartets comprised of five players, and his triangles had two sides, neither of them connected. And now the last note of the last chord of the last cadence is written. At the grand old age of 86... Don Dimitri passed away this morning. Never one to do things in a conventional way, he died in a manner he would probably have appreciated, trying to suck a kazoo instead of blowing it. He inhaled the kazoo, it became lodged in his throat, and he died to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. But now, sadly, Sir Kevin Kevin is no longer with us. Innovator that he was, he died in a way he would probably have appreciated, trying to suck a kazoo <laughs> instead of blowing it. He inhaled the kazoo, it lodged in his throat, he choked to death and played Yankee Doodle Dandy simultaneously. Ta-ra! Son of Cliché's place in the history of comedy is largely seen as a footnote. The curious primordial soup that spawned Red Dwarf, its much more successful, well-travelled and long-lasting offspring. But 40 years on, the show still stands up as being one of the most inventive, subversive and laugh-out-loud funny sketch shows in the long and glorious history of radio comedy. Thanks to Dave Hollins, its legacy is assured, but it offers so much more than that, both in terms of its influence on the later work of its creators and on its own merits. We hope you've enjoyed our look back on just a handful of the joys contained within these 16 episodes, and if you're not already familiar with the series, we highly recommend seeking it out and enjoying it in full. A top-notch cast that are firing on all cylinders, backed up by first-rate production and sound design, performing the works of two geniuses who, while not yet at the peak of their powers, were most definitely in the ascendancy. So happy birthday, son of cliché, and thank you. Thank you.
Well, welcome to Brands Hatch as we joined the closing credits for that radio comedy show, and there was Salad Cliche. And it's quite an extraordinary result. The, it, what, what was in front of me? Son of Cliche starred Steve Crabb, Sebastian Coe, Chris Berry, Nick Maloney, and Nick Wilde. Remarkable. And as we enter the second quarter of the closing credits, the show is written by Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. <laughs> there they go, the engine room doing the needful. That flaming show was written by Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. Music was by Peter Brewis. Al Nixon was the producer. It's not that bad, should it? <laughs> This Ganymede and Titan Dwarfcast was written and produced by Ian Symes. Cliché, Son of Cliché and Red Dwarf are copyright the BBC, and the use of extracts here are for the purposes of review, so leave us alone. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a comment over at www.ganymede.tv, or you can tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan, okay. so this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, and as always... Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to G&T Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Wink Martin presents the cup with the power of extrasensory perception. (laughs) You should have known you were going to say that. I understand there's a lot of people here tonight who are into computers. So here's a special joke for you, okay? Uh, Those people who don't know anything about computers, don't worry, because you'll still be able to enjoy this joke, okay? (laughs) It's in ZX80 machine code, right? (laughs) And all the numbers are, all the numbers are hexadecimal. (laughs) Here we go. Well, there's this guy who loads the DE register pair with the start address of the sound chip. Okay, so, anyway, he makes a jump relative non-zero loop. (laughs) Idiot. Increments the accumulator register and pops the contents of DE onto the stack, so the next day his friend comes in and sees the HL is loaded with the pointer address in RAM where the start of the variable is stored. He says, hey, no wonder you thought the alternative register set had its fourth bit always set to zero. You're programming a 6502 chip. I don't believe it. You can't have all of it, can you? Um, uh, if, 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 um, if you listen to the series, uh, you'll know that we always do a sort of uh, joke um, uh, when, we, when we hand over to the, to the uh, continuity people. And, uh, I mean, like, one, one time we made out they were sitting on a toilet. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. And another time we, we made out they were making love in the storage room. And, uh, and, th- and then there was that time when we made out that they were so fat and they had to be winched into the room. I, it, <laughs> no, but that was true, that one. That was actually... Oh, happened, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just that uh, while this programme's been going out, one of the continuity announcers has been promoted to uh, controller of programmes. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, so they're pretty important. Uh, uh, so, so we're not, we're not going to do it now. In, in the final four programmes of the series, uh, we won't be doing any jokes at their expense. Uh, no, four programmes to go, and, and we just hope you took it in the spirit it was intended. Um, we hope there won't be any reprisals. So, uh, anyway, I'm sorry, you know, and we'll just yeah. carry sorry. on. With no more, sorry. there'll be no more jokes sorry. from now on. So, see you next week. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Well, it will be no surprise to you to learn that that was the last son of cliché. I don't know, I might even miss them.